Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. Joins us with a weekly update on this Friday morning. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Uh, good morning and good Arab Shabbos. Good Arab Shabbos to you. I'm going to reiterate what I've said with Michael Miller, and I've said independently as well on these airwaves this week, it is not time to focus on who should or shouldn't be at the parade. It is not time to focus on those who feel the need to express their opposition to the parade. It's time to focus on celebrating Sunday and making it a great day of support for the State of Israel. Can you help me emphasize this to our precious audience? Well, if they haven't heard you say it till now, I guess it's not going to help much, but it, it is about who should be there. It's not about who shouldn't be there. It's about everyone taking part, even if they can come for a while, if they can come for the whole thing and the concert thereafter. It says the presence makes a difference, and people always say, it's, what can they do? This is the answer. All right, there you go, exactly. So I hope everybody heeds that advice and spends a day celebrating. We're so good at uh, when it comes to the bad times, as you've emphasized many times for us. Let's show that we are good when it comes to the good times as well. Um, all right, so the President of the United States visits a uh, synagogue in Washington, D.C. last Friday. Erev, a three-day yontif. Amazing, huh? Chooses, chooses a very interesting time to visit a synagogue and reiterates, of course, the commitment uh, to Israel and discusses the history of the relationship between the U.S. and Israel and, of course, what they're doing today. And you've emphasized that cooperation many, many times. Uh, I assume the key is what the analysts have been saying. He had to get out there and make a real case for the U.S.-led Iran deal. Did he do that, and did he make a good case for it last Friday? I don't think he particularly did. did a, a job to sell the Iran deal, except uh, this uh, new line, which is that you know his name will be on it, and he's young, and he'll be around to face the consequences if it fails. And therefore, he he did reiterate that he's not going to sign a bad deal. Uh, I don't think he addressed some of the substantive issues, which is what people are concerned about. And you saw the French this week come out several times, and the Fabius, the foreign minister. Uh, escalating some of the rhetoric, uh, including till yesterday, about uh, their objections and even that they will not support it if it doesn't include the intrusive inspections of the military facilities, because otherwise every military base will just become a place to hide wh- what they're really doing. And the um, the further revelations about the North Korean delegation that's there and that they are forging closer uh, ballistic and nuclear ties and that this becomes a cover so they can say that they're not doing it, but in fact North Korea will be doing it for them. They've long had a synergistic relationship in, in their nuclear programs, and the um, I think the, the key questions really remain, and you have less than a month uh, to the June 30th supposed deadline. I'm not sure it will be the deadline, and it was further complicated by the announcement that the lead U.S. negotiator, Wendy Sherman, uh, who is the last of the original negotiators, uh, is leaving, and it says shortly after June 30th. And I think that that, people are interpreting it in many ways. I think she wanted to leave for a long time, and I'm not sure that it, it indicates uh, much more than that. But certainly the, the feeling about who will oversee this if they do reach an, an agreement, who are they going to be the mature and experienced uh, people? There are technocrats, certainly, who will continue. But I think that the the questions that people have about the um, 
about the substance of the program. This is not about the politics. We see Iran expanding its activities in Yemen, new recruits, new fighters being trained, IRGC, the Iran Revolutionary Guard, admitting that they're doing it, talking about they want, uh, wanting to be on the border of, uh, of Saudi Arabia by virtue of their presence in, in Yemen, and that's a traditional enemy and, and this long-running proxy battle. Then you have them also at Baba Mandab, which we've discussed many times. It gives them control over this key trade route for, for the shipment of oil. I mean, there's many other considerations. In addition, it becomes another jumping-off point uh, uh, for them. So the, the, I don't think that today people feel more comfortable about the essence of the deal than they did a week ago or 10 days ago. What do you think of the president's line that his name is on it and he'll, you know, He'll, he'll be one of those affected years from now by it. Do you roll your eyes when you hear a statement like that? I mean, it's completely irrelevant to the process of trying to clamp down on Iran. Well, I think that it does appeal to some people, but um, it tells you his perspective that, that he's taking ownership of it or that he feels that uh, uh, he could be held accountable years later. I don't think that there's necessarily uh, a correlation of that kind, but... It is an interesting uh, approach. New tactic, let's say. Yeah, it, uh, Malcolm, we, we often discuss the real numbers when it comes to the Jewish vote in the United States. We know it's overwhelmingly Democratic, and we know that the overwhelmingly Jews in the United States, even though this audience doesn't always remember that, are pro-two-state solutions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What's the real numbers in the polls when it comes to the American Jewish community and this deal with Iran? When he walks into a synagogue like the one that he was in in Washington, D.C., does he have half of the support there, or the numbers are not close to that? On the Iran deal, there's actually a much broader consensus in the American Jewish community by every poll, and by the way, amongst the American people as a whole, even even a majority that would support military action to prevent Iran from becoming a nuclear power. I, I think in the Jewish community there is certainly broad consensus about this. I can tell you amongst the organizations and in Israel, the all of the political parties, as far as I know, share this uh, view and, and uh, abhorrence of the idea of Iran becoming nuclear power. And one of the things I suggest is that they should create, even if they can't have a unity government or a united front on other issues on this, they should have. Right. And if you had to put a number to it, it would be, I mean, we're talking 60-70% or even more? Or? Uh, uh, certainly the 60-70% would be right. And the American... For, for, it depends on what. If opposition to them being nuclear, it's in the 80s and 90s. If you're talking about... That, this specific... Approaches to it or specific solutions, the numbers, of course, diminish a little bit. But it's it's very strong. All right. Um, the president of Israel this week said something that I thought was profound, as simple as it was. He said he's a soldier in the BDS movement. And I wish that every Jew in the world would take on that type of attitude that we are all soldiers in the BDS movement. And by the way, we get more and more opportunities. We see that some popular rock groups continue to schedule trips to Israel, including one this week. Uh, there's a way to express support for them, uh, especially when they have so many in Hollywood, some notables who are in their ear. Every one of these groups has somebody in their ear telling them not to go to Israel. And in addition to that, in general, we have an opportunity to be out there in the BDS fight. This is one of those things where people ask, what can I do, what can I do? And there are a lot of little and uh, and larger things that people can do to fight this fight. It's absolutely true, and we see more people being recruited to the banner to, who are beginning to understand what we've talked about for a long time, 
and how many years we've warned about the BDS movement, and people didn't know what it stood for, and people didn't understand why we made a big deal about it. But you see how it's spreading from campus to campus, even if they don't win necessarily, and they have won on some campuses and passing it as student initiatives. The universities themselves have not implemented the, uh, the BDS uh, boycotting Israeli products, although you do have uh, in some places, especially in Europe, where academics from Israel are barred, where exchange programs were canceled, and this this does spread. This is an insidious anti-Semitic movement, and again, I don't use the term lightly. It's anti-Semitic because this boycotts one people of a certain national origin, <coughs> not because They've done something unusual to, to the world. If they were announcing BDS movements against Syria, <laughs> with 200,000 dead, against Iran for the tens of thousands they killed, against Iraq, against all of the countries that are doing things, and then they said, and we don't like something Israel's doing, but you don't see it. It's not against anybody else. And when you single out one country like this and, uh, and of a particular religious affiliation, and th the complaint against them is so uh, outrageous, and we saw it this week with the Amnesty International report, and Amnesty International hardly ever has anything good to say about Israel, but an awful lot to say that's critical. And yet they came out with a report saying that Hamas, um, which controls Gaza, obviously, arrested and tortured dozens of Palestinians, executed at least two dozen during the war against Israel, and, and that they used the war as a cover to carry out their uh, attempts to settle scores with the uh, members of Fatah, and some say even instigated the war and wanted the war because this gave them a cover to, to do what they wanted inside Gaza. Have you seen the boycott calls? Have you seen <laughs> anybody, the, the guys who want to organize flotillas? And what is the raison d'etre of Amnesty International? What is their stated purpose? No, well, they, they uh, go after people who are being arrested illegally, and it's, it's an advocacy, human rights advocacy. Right, they're, they're, they're out for justice. Army? They're out for justice. They, they're, I mean, so they say that they're well, their interpretation. Right, their interpretation of justice. <laughs> right. But, but, and, and you know, there's so much evidence. I asked a, a leading foreign official this week when about talking about the UN potential UN resolution against Israel this summer, this uh, fall, and the French and New Zealand others are, are, you know, working on it. And I said to him, how come they haven't introduced a resolution against the digging of the tunnels now? Tens of millions of dollars have been diverted from the people of Gaza, intended for their for rebuilding, rehabilitation, right. going into into the tunnels. You know the tunnels are going to cross the border. They're again going to become, they have one purpose, and that is to kill. And I haven't seen one resolution condemning the building of the tunnels and saying that what actions you're going to take to, to punish Hamas for, for these activities and those who supported it. And, and it's a... You know, it's a big activity because we see the big uh, earth movers and other things that, that are operating along the Gaza border. Uh, Israel obviously monitors it very carefully, and they have new technology, we hope, to, to detect this. Also, by the way, new technology to monitor mortars coming across uh, the border. Last time during the war, if you remember, hundreds, if not thousands of mortars were fired, and now they have a system, an early warning system, that gives people at least some notice when the uh, mortars which have a different trajectory than the missiles uh, are, are fired so they can't be defeated by iron dome they, they can't be uh, no and it's different than a regular red alert it's it's even better and more sophisticated more sophisticated and, and targeting specifically the firing or mortars because uh, iron dome needs a much bigger arc and longer distance to be able to take it out that's why 
Hamas is, is uh, augmenting their capacity to fire heavier load, shorter distance missiles in the hope of targeting the communities closer to God. I want to ask you who fired on Israel this week. Give us a second. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web. JMNAM.org. Malcolm Honeline is our guest. Our weekly update is taking place Friday starting at 7.40 Eastern Time here at JMNAM. Reminder, we're on Fifth Avenue this coming Sunday. Our webcast, audiocast, videocast begins at about 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Make sure to be tuned in. Use the NSN app, jmnam.org for audio, nachomsegel.com for video. And a big thank you to our friends uh, at J Drugs, Ronnie and Larry Birnbaum at Kitchen Sink, Doug Sokloff and Company, and the American Committee for Shari Tzedek Hospital in Jerusalem for facilitating our visit to 5th Avenue and 64th Street this coming Sunday. So who did fire on Israel this week? You mentioned uh, uh, you mentioned uh, mortars a moment ago. We know there was a rocket attack that did deserve and got a red alert uh, to the citizens of um, of the area, residents of the area uh, this week. Then we heard it was actually an exchange or or some type of rocket that was meant from one Palestinian terror group to another Palestinian terror group. What's the what are the true facts behind this week's uh, rocket attack? Well, it's not been finally determined, but it, it does not appear to be uh, Hamas. They do not want an escalation right now. That's clear. Uh, I don't think they feel that they're ready for it. They haven't built their tunnels. They have. Uh, they are acquiring more and more weapons all the time. Iran is continuing to help them, even though they had a bit of a split. And we believe that uh, Iran, by the way, is, is providing a lot of weapons to Palestinian Islamic Jihad and perhaps a new group. There are... Uh, um, numerous incidents between groups, factions within Gaza, and especially between Fatah and, uh, and Hamas. This was an errant and, and act, and it seems that Hamas actually arrested the guys who did this because they feel it jeopardizes them and might give Israel cover for a stronger retaliatory action. Israel mm-hmm. did strike back at the place where they were launched from, but in a very limited way. And nobody, I think, at this point wants to see an escalation because of uh, the activities of, uh, of, you know, some faction or, or anybody can do it. I mean, it's just it's too widespread, the capacity. You go into a field, you launch a, a rocket, yeah. no sophistication, there's no technology involved. And somebody who wants to cause problems or, or instigate something can do it. Yeah, and also, you know, we're getting to that time of year, which was a very sensitive time last year, obviously, so people paid even more attention to this rocket this week because people are starting to think back, oh, my gosh, is there going to be another summer, God forbid, like there was last summer uh, on the Israel-Gaza border? Um, so that was one concern for sure. The other thing is, it's funny, you know, I mentioned this time of year, you, you've already tossed out there the possibility of a UN resolution against Israel. I assume you mean for September, right? The annual meeting and stuff. And every time the calendar turns to June 1st, which essentially it's doing for us now, <laughs> I think it's, I think it's on my list every single week because this is an issue. You know, people think it, it pops up Labor Day. This is an issue you work on all summer long, right? Absolutely. We already started meeting with uh, leaders, and we're scheduling meetings with prime ministers and foreign ministers and heads of state who are coming. Uh, 
uh, unfortunately, it always coincides with the Yom Tovim, so it limits our ability. Yeah, but if you survived that calendaric situation last year, you could survive <laughs> yeah. anything. Because that was like Mamish on Yom Kippur, I think. Very selective, because we can't obviously right. see everybody. But look, the UN is important. What happens there has an impact. Uh, I mentioned the other day the resolution of the, stat on the Committee on Status of Women of 193 right. countries, majority of which denying women their rights. In the one country where 30 women get elected to the Knesset, they condemned Israel. Now, this week, the U.N. World Health Organization voted to condemn Israel over health rights. Israel is saving the lives of thousands of Palestinians. All these reports came out about the incredible number who came from Gaza, not just in the West Bank, to be, to be um, treated. What Israel did in every situation where we see the, the tragedies in Nepal most recently and uh, and you know the denial of of um, support for for the health systems in Gaza and other places, and they condemning and, and voting against the the resolution were just I think Australia, Canada, Israel, the U.S. Yeah. And amongst those voting to condemn were China, France, Germany, India, Italy. I mean, it's You're, ludicrous. Yeah, not not to endorse apathy, but you can understand why people get apathetic when when these types of things are going on. When this I, third... I understand, but I'm saying to you, we can't afford. I know to be apathetic, nor can we afford to ignore it because that feeds the BDS movement. These kind of resolutions become then justification, saying, "Look, we we are um, we're just follow, following the." Uh, um, steps of the United Nations and other and human rights organizations in their condemnations. Where we are seeing movement, by the way, uh, just on the BDS, the, the, uh, Illinois passed a resolution, a, a, a law against um, uh, those who participate in the boycott, meaning that they can't do business neither with the pension funds, get investments, they can't uh, do business with the state. Oh, you mentioned Canada last week. This is Illinois? I Illinois. Oh. Indiana has done it. Tennessee has done it. How come? I can't believe we didn't know this. Wow. <laughs> That's big news. <laughs> no, but I'm serious. That's it big is. news. It's, I'm yeah. saying to you, it's very significant. Right. And Congress is working on additional language. Um, they're debating the the Trade Promotion Authority uh, legislation, and that will stipulate that a key American objective in free trade negotiations with the EU includes language that will discourage anybody from participating in the boycott divestments. Now, how does that work in the state house in Illinois? For those in New Jersey who want to do the same thing here, how do they go about doing that? Just get a member to put it in. We have in New York uh, legislation like that. And there may be something in New Jersey, but it all needs to be updated. And uh, and uh, th what they th you, it's simple. The vote was, by the way, unanimous in the legislature in in Illinois. I don't I, I don't think there was a single vote against it, as I recall. If not, there may be some abstentions. Right. But the the, um, the the question also then is implementation. That you have to see that businesses that in any way participate and flirt with BDS will know that there is a price to pay. Yeah. So well. again, don't dismiss it. It's important, and and we should have this replicated in every state. California has uh, legislation where, in many cases, it, it applies to their pension funds or or state funds. This can be much broader, and the, and the legislation in Congress uh, specifically will target the EU countries, and many of them, as you know, are threatening or doing boycotts of West Bank products or oh, yeah. in general. And the absurdity should spur us on, not make us grow more apathetic. Um, 
The we don't normally discuss sports, but this week I said to, I guarantee it'll come up in this conversation. Uh, forget for a moment the the scandal uh, with FIFA from the uh, point of view of of the investigation, everything they have to go through. There is an effort to throw Israel out of the soccer association, and apparently this effort was going on even way before. Uh, uh, way before all this uh, information came out about the scandal that they're, you know, in the headlines for this week. Now, again, you know, sports has its own level of uh, of importance, and some might say unimportance. But again, we're talking about a very important symbolic episode here, where uh, we hope that the right officials are out there fighting uh, on behalf of Israel and making sure they're not thrown out. If they would be thrown out, it would cause a... Uh, it would again legitimize those who are part of the BDS movement. Yes, and what happens in sports does impacts larger segments of the population who look at these things and um, may act on it or, or be influenced by it. I do. I think right now that the tendency is going in the right direction. The head of FIFA, the current head, whether he will be you know, after this yeah. week, we don't know. <laughs> right. But at least for now, uh, visited Israel and came out against it in, in its initiative that is being pushed. Against against throwing Israel out, you're saying, right? No, the initiative to throw Israel right. out is, yeah, he came out right. against throwing it out. Right. But the Palis- this is a Palestinian Authority initiative led by Jibril Rajub, uh, and he is the head of their football association, saying that they're discriminated against, that uh, all sorts of things. It's another means of putting pressure. It's another way to promote the BDS agenda, and I hope that the countries will, will reject it. Yeah. It's amazing, actually, that Israel has remained in... In most of these major sports uh, associations over the years, I don't know what you know in basketball and other things that they play in in Europe. I, I have no idea if there's been you know major efforts over the years to get them tossed out. I have no idea. There but. have been efforts, but more important is you have to see sometimes the response of audiences to the presence of the Israelis. Some really vicious. Uh, oh, sometimes they have to play in front of no fans because they're either worried about security or worried about the way people are going to be act toward the Israelis, as you just mentioned. Etc. Uh, all right, the U.S. ISIS strategy. We keep reading articles about the uh, United Nations, especially I saw the article today in the New York Times vis-a-vis the um, the holy sites that are being plundered and the antiquities that are being plundered by ISIS. That, that's a big concern of the United Nations. And then we keep reading articles about the U.S. strategy and what the president needs to do in terms of uh, developing a real strategy against ISIS. It does seem, and we I, mean, I mentioned this last week, it does seem that there's no concrete step there's no concrete plan moving forward how to deal with them as they continue to expand and plunder anything different this week than last yes that they've uh, they've scored some successes they're clearly uh, limiting the uh, Assad forces when they they are shooting from the suburbs of uh, Damascus and uh, as I said for uh, from the beginning several years ago here you remember that you always have to watch two things, Aleppo and Damascus. And right. if they fall, he falls. And there's talk that he's going to retreat to that uh, Alawite area near Latakia in the north of, of Syria. We have a large Alawite population, and he would create some sort of safe zone there. Uh, obviously, the Russians have a big interest in that and uh, have been building some capacity in that regard. By the way, when you talk about the historic places, you know, people have read about Palmyra. Right. And the ruins there. Getting a lot of publicity. Roman yeah. ruins. You know that ma- many of the inscriptions are in Hebrew. I imagine. At, but also, Anbar, you know, the Anbar province, mm-hmm. Anbar was Pompadisa. <laughs> and the 
the places that we read about, Fallujah was also a great center of Jewish learning. And that the there are Talmudic names for, for these places. Yeah, I mean, dominated Jewish history. Uh, so, uh, how far back would we go? Uh, 1,700 years ago? Would that make sense? Around that area? Around 1,700 in the Gaulus Babel. Right. And the, uh, but people don't know that, and, and Palmyra is not just a place, it's a city of 200,000 people. About half of them are gone already. But the ISIS has uh, continued to to expand at a time when we were told they were being set back. So one second. So when they take over Idlib, and I have no idea where or what that is, and we read about it, and it's and it's painted, especially in today's papers, as a you know a big uh, um, a victory for the enemy or for ISIS in this case. So it's not Aleppo, it's not Damascus. So that's not considered an advance or a victory against Assad. Sure, it is. It's a huge. It's huge. Every time they consolidate. The whole. By the way, this involves taking over military bases. It's how they get a lot of equipment. It's also critical to their funding because they impose taxes. They loot everything in the areas they take over, which provides them with millions and millions of dollars each time. They did it in Palmyra. They're doing it there. And uh, so it has implications beyond just geography, but it establishes their, uh, their presence. And um, I know that Syria is preparing the evacuation of other key military bases, um, the the um, the growth of ISIS, by the way, not just in Syria, not just in Iraq, but also in Libya, where they've expanded their reach and where they have established a, a strong foothold. But in Malaysia, we read this week about the activities of, of ISIS and how they have uh, recruited many people the, and members of the let's say, regular Muslim community in Malaysia uh, rallying to its flag in, in Philippines and other places. Uh, the Jihad regime has been retreating on, on many of the fronts, and uh, this is uh, the uh, test to the difficulties of Hezbollah and the uh, Syrian army and the, the, the other assistance they get from Iran, finding enough people to fight on all the fronts because they're engaged all over. We've seen a re- reorientation of the al-Qaeda troops there, al-Nusra, which was in control of much of the border with, with Israel, and it seems that they are regrouping and they're trying to win support amongst the people, even though they've killed hundreds and hundreds of people, um, and they are, are looking, uh, they're all looking to take a wait-and-see attitude, but this is a shift which is looking now to the day after, about who will reign. Right now, obviously, the picture is one of, of chaos, and, uh, um, you know, we, we see it spread into, um, in Iraq, for instance, there was an important story about how Iraq provides hundreds of millions of dollars to ISIS. Why? Because they continue to pay government employees. The money is siphoned off by the ISIS in the areas they control. And, uh, and each year this funds a lot of their activities, additional activities. It, it, it's so much more complicated when, than people think that it's just simply somebody taking over a dusty village. That's not what, what's happening here. And the, the implications of ISIS growing and taking over more and more territory and being able to be a critical factor. Now, we may see the division of Syria into Shiite, Sunni. Is there a stat on how many Sunni refugees there are in the Middle East now? No. It's in the hundreds of thousands, right? It's in the millions. It's in the millions? There are millions of Sunni refugees. If you go to Jordan alone, you have a million and a half. uh, In Lebanon, probably uh, close to a million. uh, You have them in Turkey. You have them in Egypt. Iraq? It, well, they're in Iraq, but now they're running away from Iraq, too. There's no, uh, 
yeah, there's no uh, uh, safe haven anymore in Iraq because the you know the Iranians moving in and the militias. And by the way, sometimes Sunni militias are just as vicious when they take over uh, Shiite villages or get into these complex situations. So if in reality uh, a country or a superpower could step in to help the Sunni refugees, they'd be rehabilitating eventually what you would describe to be pretty militant terrorists as well. No, I mean, uh, first of all, you have a lot of minority groups. You have uh, people, and there's the humanitarian aspect. And many of the Sunnis are not involved in, in the conflict. They've lived peacefully in these areas, but the... You know, to find, if you would say, can you find someone who's going to take over? Who can unite Syria? How, who, what coalition? It's going to be very hard to, um, to, to, to identify them and to target. And it's hard to fight them because they're integrated into the population. You know, we remember the <laughs> statistics we read about the Israeli Air Force last summer. You know that one out of every four of the U.S. air missions that they fly over Syria have dropped bombs which means that three out of four do not. <laughs> because they're following Israel rules, this rules of engagement that to avoid civilian casualties. Um, they look at a picture like from a UAV, like the Israeli did, and they, they have to grant authority to engage and are reluctant to do so. And you know that Israel paid a heavy price for imposing upon itself yeah, of course. restrictions. Uh, yeah, I wasn't trying to suggest that every Sunni ends up being a terrorist, but I just... It, 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 no, I, I'm, my point was that they are so integrated into right. the population, you know, that you have uh, mixed things. Now you have much more separation that the areas where Sunnis are, you don't have Shiites, and where Shiites are, you don't have Sunnis. Uh, because the divisions have been... You know what's miraculous, and you know the history a lot better than anybody else, it, it's miraculous that they did live together uh, for so many decades, that there wasn't this push either, you know, um, because of war or because of negotiations and politics to to essentially split the country. Well, there always has been tension, and uh, that is why you need a strong leader, because these are artificial constructs, Syria, Libya, many of these countries were created by the colonial powers. They were not natural states like Egypt, which has a long history, or Morocco. This this is the unraveling of those uh, arrangements made almost 100 years ago after World War One, And when the French and British divided up the area, the, the uh, these were not natural divisions, and you had persecution of people against each other going on for all of this time. And the most stable of those governments then today, ironically enough, would still be Syria and what, Saudi Arabia? Jordan also, I guess you'd have to Syria say. Syria is not stable at all. There is no there is no government in Syria today. Yeah, but if that was the case, they, the United States wouldn't be supporting Assad to the, to the level they are. They want to see him survive, no? No. That's not they don't, they don't see... Is to have Assad survive. They would like to see him leave yesterday and, and maybe somebody new come in and that may, might make it easier to end negotiations. But they have always pushed for trying to bring the parties together to have a negotiated settlement to stop the fighting. It is not this... Pre preferably under Assad's leadership? No. Really? No, no, no. Assad has to go. That's part of the deal of any outcome of this conflict would be that Assad would have to go. The problem is, of course, that Iran is supporting him and the Russians. And this puts, again, the United States at odds, and it's why we do not have common interests with Iran, not there, not anywhere else, and why we support them and, and you know, deal with them on the nuclear issue. We know that they're lying and cheating there, they're lying and cheating on all these other things, they supply weapons, they're continuing to foment unrest, 
They're expanding the role. That's why I made the mention earlier about what they're doing in Yemen with more fighters, more, more destabilization. They're doing it inside Saudi Arabia. They're doing it in Sudan. They're doing it in Libya. Uh, you know, Iran is the major destabilizing force. Had we dealt with Iran, we could have dealt with all these other situations in a very different context. They are the fulcrum. They are the. They are, they are remain, and will be the fulcrum. Um, does it matter that uh, Tony Blair is leaving his position as special, special Mideast envoy? Yes, he's, I think he's played by a larger constructive role, and uh, I'm sure that um, the Prime Minister is not happy, and Netanyahu is not happy to see him leave. We don't know who will take his place. Hmm. The Europeans, uh, I think he probably was too pro-Israel for some of the Europeans, and um, uh, well, we'll see if he continues to play a role in another context. And what does it mean, not that you have to explain someone else's position, but you certainly could help us understand it better. What, what does it mean when the former Prime Minister of Israel, Ehud Barak, says that it's time for Israel to disengage from the Palestinians? What, what is he suggesting? Simple, Simply a two-state solution or something more drastic than that? Well, no, he, that, he's, he, that, that doesn't arise. When you say disengage, in most cases it means uh, that we, uh, that they not uh, have the rule, that they don't rule over a Palestinian population. Right, essentially two states, right? In other areas. It, it doesn't necessarily mean statehood, but he did, if you remember, the Barack plan offered statehood to the Palestinians, right. offered them 95% plus of what they wanted, and they rejected it. So you cannot unilaterally do it. That was the lesson of the Gaza disengagement, one of the lessons of many. But you can't do it unilaterally. You just can't just walk away and say, you know, these are the areas we're taking and we're leaving the rest. It has to be negotiated. And that's the the obla of all of this is that the Palestinians don't want to negotiate. That's why the U.N. resolution, and as I explained to some of the Europeans this week, who, who I think honestly didn't really understand why the depth of our opposition, I said if you just take it on the basis of wanting to have a negotiated settlement, ultimately, you are undermining it. Because why will Abbas ever do anything? If the Vatican recognizes them, all of you do, you dump on Israel, you make one-sided resolutions, mm. you will create facts that he will never have to negotiate, never have to come to the table, which means you will never have meaningful negotiations. Yeah. And I think that, that, you know, Barack and others make a lot of statements, people who, who there are many Israelis, I think majority, who uh, would agree to some sort of a settlement where they don't have to control or interact on a daily basis. It doesn't mean every opinion has to be said publicly. Uh, it doesn't mean it has to be said publicly, and it does undermine, because it puts more pressure yeah. than on the government of Israel at a time when uh, not enough yeah. pressure as it is. And that's why we have to concentrate on the unity and the togetherness and all the things we have in common. Well, I think Iran is an example, and why I would hope that in, in Israel at least they could do that, and that the Knesset focus... BDS, all these things are, are unifying things. When you get to the issue of uh, negotiations and what, what should be done, you know, this is not just a decision Israel can make. It, it, it's it's a, a decision that needs other parties, meaning somebody to negotiate with. And the, to, to put all the pressure on Israel coming from inside Israel only augments the problem that a government of Israel faces. And there's every government, including Netanyahu, just in the last day said he's ready to negotiate. Yeah. All right, enjoy Sunday. Don't forget when people uh, stop you on Fifth Avenue, make sure to mention to them that I deserve a key to the thermostat at WFMU, which they still refuse to give me after 31 years. So I please, can't that. yeah, please, I'm begging you. I think there should be a UN resolution. <laughs> Maybe I can get the government of Tennessee to pass a resolution. <laughs> Part of the BDS movement. If it'll help, I'm yeah. begging you to do so. <laughs> <laughs>
Have a wonderful Shabbos. There he is. It's uh, Malcolm Holmline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations with our weekly update. It did sound like he was on my side of the issue, on the most important issue about the thermostat. It did sound like it toward the end, that he was ready to support me in this uh, effort against WFMU management that has uh, created a stir.